Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani, and I wanted to let you know that each and every week I'm part of a great program called the Ringer MMA Show. I host it alongside two absolutely brilliant minds. Their names, Chuck Mendenhall and Pete C. Carroll. And every Thursday, a new episode drops where we preview the weekend in mixed martial arts and react to all the biggest news. Plus, after every UFC pay-per-view, we give you a post-fight show. So this is what you have to do. Just follow the Ringer MMA show on your Spotify app so you don't miss an episode. We'll talk to you then. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hello and welcome to Trial by Content. It's the podcast where we force our favorite pop culture to compete in the Coliseum of Contentious Opinion so we can all decide what wins. Each week, your three humble hosts will debate a pop culture topic, set the specific rules, and rumble until a consensus is reached. Then, with input from you, the listener base, we'll smash together our nominations with yours and determine a final four-nominee poll that will enter trial by content and decide which two films will move on to the final round of the cage match. Hello again, I'm Dave Gonzalez. Oh, hello again, I'm Joanna Robinson. And hello, I am still Neil Miller. This week, we're continuing to honor our national treasure, Nicolas Cage, (laughs) as part of our April Trial Royale Cage Match to determine the best and or most Nicolas Cage movie. This week, we dive into the Cage division, which is still pretty wacky, featuring movies that go hard to have fun or go meta and still manage to be a lot of fun. Fear not, there's no Cyrus the Virus this week, just Holly Hunter, Meryl Streep, Cher, and a person the internet has absolutely hated this year, he says with deep sarcasm, one Pedro Pascal. It's Cage Match, round two, Cage Division. But first, which two films will this week's winners go up against in next week's final round? Joanna, what were the kings of the uncaged division? Oh, plural, because that's how a trial royale works. Two are moving forward. Um, also, I love that you listed all the love interests this or. I guess not Meryl Streep, but all these leading ladies and and Pedro. That's that's great. Sharon Horgan <laughs> is like temp- technically the love interest, but really it's it's about Pedro and Nick Cage. If you have not seen that movie, absolutely. All right. Last week, uh, a big a big one for the internet: Con Air versus The Rock versus Face Off versus National Treasure. Uh, for a while there, I should say 
the Rock and Face Off were in the lead, like for a little while. And then mm-hmm. the millennials like woke up and got online and Gen Z joined them and National Treasure went racing ahead. But it was close one the whole time. It was close. So many of you voted. Like this is by far our most popular poll we've ever done. Um, and something that I learned that I did not know before we picked even started this whole experiment was Mallory Rubin told me that apparently Face Off is like a cherished ringer film. I didn't know that. Mm. It was definitely the cage film oh. that I was like most advocating for, but I did not know that like they did a live watch of it, I think at Largo in LA, like with live commentary and like before the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. It is a cherished ringer film. And that is good news because it is going forward. So Con Air, bottom of the list, 18.6%. We should have learned this, I think, in the plane movie uh, poll that we did. People don't like Star <laughs> mm-hmm. Trek and they don't like Con Air on this listenership. I don't know what's happening, but that's true. Uh, third place, The Rock, 26-ish percent of the vote. Um, and then moving on, Face Off with 20, just edging it out with 27% of the vote. And then National Treasure... Oh, no. Oh, no. With 28.5% of the vote. Dave, how are you doing? Just a a stab to my heart. I don't understand. Not since Phil Collins' Tarzan track have I felt this betrayed (laughs) by how I understood the pop culture landscape. What what are we doing here? Well, okay, listen. Listen, listen. We got some emails from some people being like, I think our implication, accidental implication was like, if you like... National Treasure, you're either dumb or like uber patriotic or too young to know better or whatever. That's obviously not the case. Some of the best people we know love National Treasure. So it's like, it's obviously fine to love National Treasure. We just don't love National Treasure. And I think what's definitely true, something we were seeing a lot in the Twitter mentions of this poll was that Face Off the Rock and Con Air, which all came out in short, you know, Mm-hmm. In like in very near each yep. other at a time or all of the similar oeuvre were probably splitting the vote. And that perhaps if it came down to something like National Treasure versus Face Off, maybe the Face Off Rock Con Air people would rally around one, but they did not coordinate their votes. Someone was <laughs> sure. saying like if this, were ranked, if this were ranked voting, National Treasure never would have gone through. We'll see. We shall see when this all continues. The, the good news is the the face-off rock con air fandom contingent will have a chance to rally around face-off and uh, defeat our national nightmare, which is national treasure. Here's here's my (laughs) counterpoint to this. I'm going to make it about me. I think the internet just dislikes me enough. So next week, I'm going to bring my best argument that National Treasure is the most cagiest film for the finals. And we'll see if that leads to me either being right, which I love, or uh, therefore getting National Treasure uh, booted off the top spot. We'll see. Just if you guys want contrarian, get ready for contrarian, contrarian. It's it's coming next week. Dave, I don't think this is about you, Dave. Like with love and respect oh, to you and your ego. Oh, it's definitely about me. It's the, okay. Yeah, it's all it's all about me. It's always about me. Got it. All right. Um, this week we are debating four more uh, Nicolas Cage films. We're really excited to talk. Like these are great movies and we had a great time watching it today we're going to be talking about moonstruck raising arizona adaptation and the unbearable weight of massive talent in what we are calling the quote-unquote cage division you should know these divisions are somewhat arbitrary and we just are like looking <laughs> for ways to love movies together so if you're like this one should be an uncaged or this one should be an-. yeah i agree with you but we're doing our best to draft these these divisions as we can so 
The hook uh, this week, as it was last week, is Renfield, aka Nicholas Kim Dracula. <laughs> Neil likes to call it. Uh, we still, as far as I know, haven't seen it. My my press screening is tonight. Have my press screening it? is also tonight. Yeah. So we haven't seen it yet, but we'll see it in, in time to talk about it next week. Uh, so that is, you know, Renfield. We're still looking forward to it. <laughs> and I have a still couple, could be good. I have a couple Renfield um, little tidbits for us in a little bit. Sure. Well, I guess everybody can see it by next week, right? Because it's coming yes. out this weekend. Yeah. yeah. Come out this weekend. So you should all go see. I mean, go support the the Knicks. Go see Renfield. I'm not sure it's gonna be great, but I think it's gonna be fun. As any Nicholas Cage, a true Nicholas Cage head will tell you, you gotta take the good with the bad, because there's a lot of it. <laughs> I think I think it'll be fun no matter what. Um before we get into like all the cage stuff, and we have a lot of cage stuff for you. The, the cage runneth over for you this week. Um, Dave, we wanted to check in on the big movie bet. Mm, yes. Wait, wait, before you before you start running your little victory lap here. I mean, say, I, I heard it wasn't about me, so I'm waiting. <laughs> no, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be so about you in just a second. I promise. Um, but I just want like before you get into it, will you remind people who maybe like didn't listen to that episode what the big movie bet is, what's going on with it, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. We had a podcast that you could find further up this feed about what's going to be the biggest movie of 2023. This is based not only on box office, but on a metric that Neil has constructed that also takes in some critic ratings, some Rotten Tomatoes scores. Uh, So I don't want to sound too uh, happy about my position, but uh, you guys did vote me pretty near the bottom when we were talking about uh, what was going to be the biggest movie. Uh, Joanna's pick of Across the Spider-Verse came in first place. Neil's pick of Mission Impossible 7, uh, extremely long subtitle part one, uh, (laughs) came in second. Uh, Then Barbie, then me. So way at the bottom, uh, the first one out of the gate was the Super Mario Brother movie. Here's a list of records uh, in the box office that uh, this movie <laughs> broke last week. Highest grossing debut of 2023. Biggest five-day opening of all time, overtaking Revenge of the Fallen. Highest grossing debut for Illumination. That's the animation studio. Uh, the second biggest debut ever for an animated movie. Uh, the highest grossing debut for a video game adaptation Internationally, it is also the biggest opening of 2023, the second biggest animated opening of all time, the biggest illumination of all time, and the biggest video game movie of all time. And uh, globally, it has the highest animated opening weekend ever. And uh, that's just some of the stuff uh, that Super Mario has done at (laughs) the box office. However, as Joanna was quick to point out, as I was uh, very specifically uh, boosting the fact that we got like a Barbie trailer and an Across the Spider-Verse trailer uh, also this week when Mario came out. Looking really good in box office for me. I saw the Super Mario Brothers movie at a screening. It is now out. So I can tell you guys, I was very happy that it appeared to be a four-quadrant movie, but I also think it is one of the emptiest movies I've ever seen. Who cares about any of these people? Certainly not me. Uh, so I'm kind of not surprised that it has a 57% critics rating on the Rotten Tomatoes and a 96% audience score because also something that's true is every friend that I know that had a has a child 
uh, age seven or below this week uh, went to the Super Mario Brothers movie. It was actually uh, one of the first movies for some of my friends' kids, and everybody seemed to like it. So Super Mario Brothers uh, might be fourth according to our poll, uh, but so far is uh, number one out of the gate with uh, zero other competitors at this point. Yeah, I was so let's say. see if I can hold on. <laughs> it's, it's pretty impressive. Although, you know what that movie doesn't have that one of the other movies on our poll list did have? In fact, the other animated film that it does have? Nicolas Cage. So mm. I think, you know, just so keep a it reminder, in perspective. A reminder <laughs> that the criteria... Uh, and we will, in short order, have so much more information, right? Because Spider-Verse is coming out. Barbie's coming out this summer. Mission Impossible. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll know more very soon. But yes, Dave is the first one out of the gate. And it's going well for you. And I actually am genuinely really happy for you. But the criteria are Rotten Tomato score, critic score, Rotten Tomato audience score, domestic box office, and Metacritic score for a total. And so I think you've got like three out of four of those are looking pretty good. You just got one ding. Uh, with the critic score. So we'll see how it all works out for you. Um, Neil, anything you want to say about Mario Brothers before we move on? I haven't seen it yet. So, no, not really. Um, oh, did you get to see it, Joanna? I have not seen it yet. Well, you guys need to contribute to this box office here <laughs> if I'm going to win. <laughs> I probably won't see it in theaters, but I yeah. will 100% watch it at home. Is that vindictive or just No, not I don't interested? think my, like... <laughs> Ten dollars are going to put you over the top, Dave. I just don't feel like I need to see that in the theater. But I've heard good things about it. People I enjoy enjoyed it. So there we go. All right. Um, last week we're gonna we're gonna roll on from this, Dave. Unless there's just like one more. I really am happy for you. Anything else you want to say? <laughs> While it's still um, all about let, you, let, let <clears throat> very unaccented. Let's go. Let's. <laughs> It's a me, Joanna, back trying to bring you back to Nick Cage. Um, last week we did earliest cage memory. So this week we're doing the one where you realize you'd always be a Nick Cage fan, the movie that cemented your fandom. Dave, what's your what's your entry here? Uh, it's gonna be bringing out the dead. Uh, it's a Martin Scorsese ambulance uh, movie. But uh, the reason I think it did cement then is it was a perfect time for me to see Nick Cage in a prestige movie in theaters because it was 1999 and basically every weekend was a great time to be in the theaters in 1999 is my recollection but i do have a very distinct memory that my friend nate's mom uh took me to bringing out the dead i was realizing that i might sort of want to be involved in film and pop culture uh in my future so i was very psyched to, I, I believe, see my first in-theater Scorsese movie. And uh, Nick Cage is just so great in that. Uh, and uh, I think that was the one where I was like, you know what, I'm going to see more Nick Cage movies. And imagine my surprise when, like, Bring Out, Out the Dead is a very serious movie and the rest of Nicolas Cage, like a lot of the movies that we'll be talking about this week, uh, are just tons of fun. So I didn't have the most fun, but I did become interested in the shamanistic acting of Nick Cage. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, what's your answer here? Uh, well, mine, similar to Dave, it's more about the timing of this film than probably necessarily the quality, because I was, by the time the year 2000, uh, the millennium rolled around, I was very aware of Nick Cage. We just talked about three great movies that he was in in the 90s, but I don't know if it really solidified until I saw Gone in 60 Seconds in the theater. And it was mostly because that was 
2000 was, I think, the first year I started to drive my own car. And it was like this this one-two punch of like Gone in 60 Seconds in 2000 and then Fast and Furious in 2001, where I went from being a teenager who cared about spaceships to a teenager who wanted, uh, who was interested in muscle cars. That didn't last very long, uh, thankfully for me <laughs> and my finances, because those cars are expensive. But uh, there's something about, you know, the energy of the soundtrack of, of, of Gone in 60 Seconds, the just wildly strung out performance of Giovanni Ribisi. You get Christopher Eccleston. I think next week we're going to definitely do like a Nicolas Cage antagonist check-in, like who's his best antagonist. And Raymond Kalitri is a hell of a <laughs> villain. Uh, there's that like, <laughs> there's the whole Angelina Jolie of it all uh, in that movie, which is which is really great. And, uh, yeah, I honestly think it's, it's mostly about the soundtrack and then the moment where they're all standing there getting ready for the big one night 50 car heist and Nicolas Cage just stops and he looks over to Chai McBride's character and he's like, low rider, Donnie. And they start playing low rider. And it's like this, like religious, like out of body, almost speaking in tongues experience for these car thieves. It's such a ridiculous movie. Uh, yet another in the Jerry Bruckheimer, Nicolas Cage uh, family tree. <laughs> right. And and yeah. that was the moment where I was like, whatever, whatever Nicolas Cage does, no matter how weird. And he has tested the limits of this over the years. I will always show up for a Nicolas Cage movie. So, uh, Joanna, what, what was what's yours? Mine is such a vanilla answer, but I just have to be honest with myself and say, like, this is probably the Nicolas Cage movie I've seen, like, the most often, uh, rewatched the most, which is the 1994 rom-com It Could Happen to You, which is about <laughs> a cop and a waitress uh, played by one Nicolas Cage and one uh, Bridget Fonda, where he doesn't have money for a tip. And so he tells her if he wins, he has a lottery ticket, though, and if he wins the lottery, he's going to split it with her. Uh, and then he wins, but he's married to Rosie Perez. Uh, and he has like a little crush on Bridget Fonda, but he's like, he's a, he's a stand-up guy. He doesn't do anything untoward. Rosie Perez, all-time villain performance from Rosie Perez. Uh, great sleazebag Stanley Tucci performance as Bridget Fonda's ex-husband, who like comes to town and eats all of the macadamia nuts in her fancy hotel room, just like uh, out of the mini fridge, like complete, utter, disgusting sin from Stanley Tucci. Um... I love this movie. This is and this is a movie that basically does not exist anymore. Like nobody remembers that this movie happened, but it was briefly a thing in '94, and it is a thing that Cage did. <laughs> and I've seen it so many times, and uh, I just wanted to, you know, do oh, my yeah. best Amanda Dobbins and make sure that I mentioned it could happen to you. All right, let's. We're going to play a little round of Nick Cage trivia that I'm springing on Dave and Neil. And let me just be really honest with you guys. The point really isn't for you to get any of these things right. The point is the world needs to know some of this trivia. Okay. So, like, have fun with your guesses. We're not keeping score. But I just, this is basically a gamified excuse for me to read some Nick Cage trivia. Are you ready? Nick Cage was the first choice for this 1994 Jim Carrey comedy. 1994? Dumb and Dumber. Neil, do you have an answer? Is it? It's too early to be the mask. Is it Ace Ventura? <laughs> no. It is Dumb and Dumber. Uh, the Farrelly brothers <laughs> wanted Nick Cage and Gary Oldman to oh, play the yeah. characters <laughs> played by Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels in Dumb and Dumber. Incredible content. 
Um, all right, I've got a couple little uh Renfield tidbits here for you, uh, from courtesy of the Nick Cage Nick Holt Reddit AMA that they did for Renfield. Oh boy, um, all right. All right. Here's a quote about the, I've got two quotes that Nick Cage gives about the experience of making Renfield. And I would like you to tell me what he's describing. All right. So the first one is there's something warm and fuzzy about it. This is Nick Cage described describing something that happened while he was making the film Renfield. There's something warm and fuzzy about it. Mm, the the master thrall relationship. Okay. Master thrall relationship. Neil? I, it almost feels like it has to be about like some brutal, violent thing that happens. <laughs> like like Dracula eating someone or something. I'm gonna give you partial credit for that. Um this is Nick Cage describing the the experience of drinking your own blood. <laughs> he, he says, <sighs> the fangs were genuine fangs. They were ceramic and quite pointy, so I did bite my lip a few times, which made me drink my own blood. And then Nick Holt said something like, it, your own blood is kind of nice. And Nick Cage says, there's something warm and fuzzy about it. So there I mean, you go. It is That's true if you, Cage- <laughs> if you if you like bite your tongue or your mouth, and you're, it's very warm when it comes out. So, is it fuzzy? I don't know about fuzzy, said? though. <laughs> Imagine being Nicholas Holt on this press tour trying to just yes and Nicholas Cage into weirder answers. That's what that reads as to me. Oh, you're your own blood, though. That's fine, right, Nick? <laughs> Talk about drinking your own blood, Nick. <laughs> All right, this is the this is the second and last uh, incident on the set of Renfield that Nick Cage is describing. He says, if you factor in the notion of Zeus, it could be paranormal. <laughs> What is he describing? If you factor in the notion of Zeus, it could be paranormal. A lightning storm. I mean, yeah, I think something like a lightning storm is probably the right answer. The Redditor asked if anything paranormal happened on the set of Renfield, and they talked about a massive storm that they got trapped in where there was thunder and lightning. And Nick Cage, like a totally normal person, said, <laughs> if you factor in the notion of Zeus, it could be paranormal. <laughs> so he's he's leaving open the possibility that Zeus was involved in creating that storm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, sense. that's I, what I like about that is that goes way back past like curses, like straight to just like, Zeus. Like, think of all the things you skipped over supernaturally. And he's like, no, obviously this would be Zeus. Love it. Um, all right. The next section of this. Oh, no, really quick one. Okay, there is. Do you remember how in the 80s there was that campaign where they put famous people on library posters and just said, read? I have the one with Yoda, yes. right? Mm-hmm. The forces with you, read Yoda. There was one with Nick Cage in which he is holding a book. Would you like to take a wild swing at what book Nicolas Cage selected for himself to be holding on his 1980s library campaign read poster? Hamlet. Oh, that's a good Go. one. Uh, Gatsby. Gatsby. I will say it is a book I did read in high school, but it is neither Gatsby or Hamlet. It is Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. So, uh, <laughs> of course. That is what, of course. <laughs> nouveau shaman Nicolas Cage picked for his uh, 80s read poster. Okay. Uh, we're almost done here. Just uh, two more things. Number one, I've got a little segment called Is This Nick Cage Describing Himself or Is This Colleagues of Nick Cage Describing Him? Okay. Uh, so I'm going to read you a statement and you're going to tell me if it is Nick Cage describing himself or is someone he worked with describing him. Okay. We're going to start with, um, a troubled live action version of Pinocchio. 
this is a uh uh Nick Cage describing himself. Yeah. I feel like this is someone else describing him. This is Nick Cage describing himself. <laughs> the Pinocchio poll is so sure. uh, archaic in a good way. Like watching a two hour car accident. This is somebody else describing Nick Cage. I mean, yeah. that also feels, I would almost guess that that's like a film critic describing Nick Cage. That is renowned film critic Cher describing her experience <laughs> watching Peggy Sue got married. <laughs> Shout out to Cher, iconic film critic. <laughs> she saw Peggy Sue got married. She said it was like, she told Nick Cage it was like watching a two-hour car accident and that she was desperate for he, him to be her co-star in Moonstruck. And he said, I took that as a compliment. So wonderful stuff I mean, from Cher. It's fair. Okay. Um, almost like silent film like Lon Chaney is this... Nick Cage describing himself, or is this someone describing Nick Cage? That one feels like it has to be Cage describing himself. No one loves old. No, no one would talk about Lon Chaney in context of Nick Cage, other than Nick Cage. I'm gonna take the opposite. I think Nick Cage would have a different pull uh, for the makeup effects he uh, pulls off. Um, that was Martin Scorsese describing the acting style of Nicolas Cage. Um, well, fair enough. All right. The California Klaus Kinski. Is that Nick Cage describing himself or is that someone else describing Nick Cage? want to believe that that's him describing himself, but now I feel like that has to be Werner Herzog describing Nicholas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say, uh, yeah, K- that's Cage on Cage. That's that's alliteration. That's Cage Cage alliteration right there. That is Cage on Cage. Nice. That, and he is that is not a specific time. He I have read many interviews where he has called himself the California Klaus Kinski. So wow. just now I need to know what Herzog actually thinks about that comparison. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. Um. All right. Almost done. The only actress in Marlon Brando that's actually done anything new with the art is that Nicolas Cage, or is that someone? <laughs> oh my describing god! I hope Nicolas that's Cage. not Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Nicolas Cage would be the only one who would say that about himself. So I'm going to say Nicolas Cage. That is Ethan Hawke. Cage on Cage. That is Ethan Hawke describing Nicolas Cage. Oh. oh. <laughs> yeah. High praise from sure. Ethan Hawke. I mean, Ethan Hawke knows Hawk. what he's talking about, so. Um, the full Bugs Bunny. Is that Nicolas Cage or is that someone describing Nicolas Cage? That is... Oh, God. I feel like I've read this. Is that... Uh, someone describing Nicolas Cage's performance in Raising Arizona. So like a Edgar Wright, maybe? Yeah. I feel like that one, I'm going to go with Cage on Cage for that one. That is Cage on Cage. That is Cage describing ah. his own performance in The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent because he, like, his Nicky character smooching people. That's his, like, the full bugs bunny. <laughs> um, he does make out with himself, so... Uh, Cage describes his, I will just bonus point to you, Dave. Cage describes his performance in, um, Raising Arizona as the full Woody Woodpecker. So that's a different cartoon. Oh, of course. Creature. Cause he has the tattoo. Yeah. That makes sense. He got, he put that tattoo. That was his choice to like explain what he was going for, which is the full Woody Woodpecker. Last but not least for this segment, and this is the last thing I have to do for this entire segment is someone described him as the jazz musician of American acting. Was it Nicolas Cage himself or was it one of his colleagues, the jazz musician of American acting? 
So these are tough because each one of these seems like, oh, no way Cage would say that about himself. He see, he actually has he the, like, an element of humility, but he does. then he also says some crazy shit about himself. So I, I'm going, this is not Cage. This is someone else. I'm going to do the opposite of Neil <laughs> because who would say I'm doing jazz here referring to a Nick Cage performance besides Nicolas Cage? It is, in fact, one of your... Favorite creators, David is one. Mr. David Lynch said that about Nicholas Cage. Oh, all right. In Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart, uh, a film that I watched for the first time for, you know, because people were like, why didn't you guys pick Wild at Heart? I did not finish it. I had a really, real bad time with Wild at Heart. Uh, Laura Dern, Nicholas Cage, David Lynch joined. I have, I love David Lynch and I like young Cage and young Laura Dern, but I did not enjoy this movie. So I just, Stop watching it. So that's my extra credit that I did this week. All right. Um, we asked the listeners uh, if they were to do a real a face-off <laughs> IRL thought experiment. By the way, one of my favorite Twitter responses we got to the poll this week was someone was like, how can you possibly suspend your disbelief to watch something like Face Off? And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Do you think this film is trying <laughs> to be a Have documentary? You the other entries? <laughs> what are you talking about? Anyway, um, <laughs> if you were to get to Face Off, with someone, who would you face off your face with? Neil, do you want to read this first email from Hollis? Absolutely. This one came from Hollis. This is a fun one. They said, I would switch faces with Chris Pine and I can't stress this enough, do absolutely nothing different. My king is living the best life in the industry right now and I have absolutely no notes. I'd wear caftans and blossom hats and Birkenstocks with socks at any given moment. I'd disassociate at cringy public events. I'd make three to five more Hell or High Waters and zero to negative one more J.J. Abrams Star Trek films. I'd do all of this, but probably mostly the caftans. Chris Pine, king of the Chris's, I want to take your face off. <laughs> That's, I, I like this one because of the fact that nothing else changes except Chris Pine is a new person underneath. Chris Pine now, I mean, hopefully Chris Pine now turns... Hollis into a caftan wearing blossom hat wearing and then they just person, continue yeah. to hang out wearing caftans yeah, and Birkenstocks together. Yeah. Dave, do you want to read this email we got from Abby about who they would face off with? Abby writes in, as per Joanna's prompt, I would trade faces with JK Rowling. My first act as quote unquote Joe would be a press conference to say that I was wrong and apologize for my transphobic attitudes and comments. I would express great regret for the harm I have caused the trans community, who is under constant attack from lawmakers and general bigotry. I would also donate massive amounts of her money to nonprofits to support the LGBTQ plus community. I would also donate to politicians who oppose legislation that harms LGBTQ plus people. In addition, on doing some of the harm that JK has caused. It would also mean that I could enjoy all of Harry Potter again. Win-win. Abby, an inspired pick, honestly, Truly. from Abby. And honestly, this is, the, this is the best answer. Super brave. We talked last week about, you know, the the downside of doing it with like someone like Elon Musk. It was like, you could do all these changes, but you got to look like Elon Musk for the rest of your life. So, uh, you know, taking one for the team by uh, taking out these billionaires. <laughs> To save Harry Potter by... Oh, I thought there was a comment yeah. on Joe's appearance. I was like, J.K. Rowling looks fine. What are you talking about? Okay. um, You just mean like possibly getting pelted with tomatoes and straight or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Okay. Um, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got you got to got got live as the person who did the bad <laughs> yeah, things right? and got apologized, like, which isn't always... Can you apologize enough to be truly left alone at any point <laughs> in your life? I don't know. 
I don't know if it's possible. We also asked listeners to send in like cage adjacent comment content, and we got two really fun uh, responses. One was we got a lot of emails about this bit that Andy Sandberg used to do on Weekend Update called uh, "Get in the Cage with Nicholas Cage," where he used to have like a bunch of different actors, like Liam Neeson or Paul Rudd, like come on and Andy Sandberg did his Nick Cage impression, and then in like fine SNL format. Eventually, Nicolas Cage came on to do Get in the Cage with Nicolas Cage along with Andy Samberg doing Nicolas Cage. So, Carlos, can you play a little clip from that uh, that skit? That's right, Seth. And it's not to be missed, for it has the two key qualities of a classic Nick Cage action film. Number one. All the dialogue is either whispered or screamed. (laughs) And, of course, number two. Everything in the movie is on fire. That was a description of uh, Ghost Rider, right? I think, but uh, it's... <laughs> I think it's, the, the it's, Ghost Rider sequel, even. Yes. What is the Ghost Rider sequel called? Spirit of Vengeance. <laughs> Spirit of Vengeance. Oh, Ghost Rider 2. Anyway, I thought that that was like a really fun, uh, you know, little rubric for uh, Cage content. And then we also got this other email from uh, Nada who wrote, when you announced the Cage match, what immediately came to my mind was a safe house episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine where Jake Peralta, Andy Samberg again, uh, brings his personal collection of DVDs as the only source of entertainment during confinement as he protects Captain Raymond Holt's husband, Kevin Cosner, Mark Evan Jackson, a classics professor. Kevin transforms from haughty indifference I don't know who that is to only the greatest, most compelling actor of all time to calling out con air quotes <laughs> upon being sprung. Two months later, Jake realizes he forgot about one DVD. There was a movie about a mandolin and you kept it from me for two months. <laughs> well, I didn't think it was any good. It was just some period piece. What? Set in Greece. Oh my God. Based on some dumb book. Ah! The compilation <laughs> for the cage scenes is linked below so you can watch how a cage conversion unfolds. Thanks so much for that. Of course, Captain Corelli's mandolin got an important shout out in one of our films that we will be talking about in our debate. Yeah. Uh, last but not least, Neil, do you want to hit this cage comp we got from listeners? Absolutely. So last week on the podcast, I was trying to come up with who is sort of the next generation cage. Who's the the Zoomer cage? maybe, or the or the younger millennial cage. And I said uh, Robert Pattinson, which I thought was a pretty good one, but got an email from Shane. Shane says, inspired by Neil's RPAT comp, I think Daniel Radcliffe is closer to the cage zone. I don't think cage could have ever pulled off being Batman, whereas I feel like Radcliffe was the second choice to cage for movies like Jungle or Guns Akimbo. And uh, <laughs> I, I like this one because, sure, Dan Radcliffe probably is especially in the caged division or the cage unleashed division that we're going to talk about later, where he has this great ability to pick weird stuff. But, uh, you know, I don't know. Could cage have ever been Batman is an interesting question because cage was almost Superman at one point. So, um, I think, you know, he has that star power. We've seen that from Dan Radcliffe. So I like, I like this one. It's maybe not as, uh, as on the nose as, I thought our Pats was, but uh, if you have more of these, our email address is always trialbycontent at gmail.com. I would love to get more. Who do you think, I guess like 15 years from now, 10, 15 years from now, we're going to think was like the next Nicolas Cage, or if that's even possible. I don't think that like, it's funny because um, I think of Dan Rad as, as almost like a mini Elijah Wood, like someone who had like massive franchise success and then is like, choosing actively to do weird things like the lost city or the weird owl movie and stuff like that. Uh, but Elijah Wood is like a little Nicholas Cage accolade. Like they've done a movie together. Elijah was the reason that cage did Mandy, you know, like they have a little like 
oddball friendship going. So like, I like this idea of Dan Rad being, I, I love all of the choices that Daniel Radcliffe has made in his post Harry Potter life. I'm a big fan. Neil, well, that takes us into your uh, rules rundown section of the podcast. It sure does. We are in this second week of the debate, still talking about what is the best Nicolas Cage movie. Of course, that is a movie that stars Nicolas Cage. Uh, This week, we've got another round of The Toughest Cuts, which is the one that should have made the debate, but was just off the list. I'm going to start. I have one with a great email. Mine, I mentioned Werner Herzog earlier, uh, is... Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, a 2009 film in which Nicolas Cage plays a a detective who has some trauma that he suffered during Katrina and uh, is, is now trying to investigate murders. And here's the email from Courtney, which I thought was really good. If this is too late for the final round of the Cage Match movies, no worries, but I just listened to the first episode today and had to make a submission for the final round on behalf of my father. My dad, who passed away in 2017, was often described as stoic and serious, but I wish everyone as much pure joy as he got from watching Nick Cage movies, and specifically Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. I have never seen Bad Lieutenant, so the only thing I can confidently tell you about it is that Cage's performance in it made my dad laugh so hard, he'd turn bright red and have trouble breathing (laughs) just describing the movie to me. I think Cage plays a cop who does a bunch of drugs and crazy shit, but I mostly couldn't follow what my dad was saying through the wheezing laughs. So I nominate Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans on behalf of my stoic father who loved Nicolas Cage's unhinged performance in it so much he'd laugh to the point of being unable to breathe. Thanks for all the pots. Uh, first of all, Courtney, thank you for telling us this awesome personal story about your father and his relationship to this movie. You did pretty much sum it up. It is basically Nicolas Cage plays a cop who does a bunch of drugs and crazy shit in New Orleans. <laughs> so um, that's uh, that's pretty accurate and a deeply enjoyable vibe of this. Like it's a it's a it's a vibes movie, right? Like it's it's about <laughs> it's about a very unhinged cop who is struggling with substance abuses, and the vibes are very chaotic. And uh, there's there's a moment where Werner Herzog. Uh, zooms in very closely on the face of an iguana and the cage is standing there sort of looking dumbfounded behind him that really sums up sort of like I said the the existential thoughtful (laughs) vibes that are going on in this extremely weird dark violent movie so Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans is one of those like cage time capsules where it's like if if you've seen all the big cage movies and you just want to dive right into the weird stuff this is a perfect one. So that was my toughest cut this week. Uh, Joanna, what what do you got for toughest cut? Um, I'm, you know, Into the Spider-Verse. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is just like such a fun Nick Cage. Nick Cage who likes comic books, but doesn't like, like them so much. He reads them with a tray of lemon cookies, as we discovered last week. But like, likes comic books, has played Ghost Rider, has played Spider-Man. But then also says, I don't need to be in the MCU of Nick Cage. So sure, Nick, uh, that's true also. Um, as Spider Noir, uh, so good, so fun in this movie. And like something that Nick Cage said in a lot of the press interviews around Unbearable Way to Massive Talent, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the debate, uh, is this idea of like, 
people think I'm not in on the joke. I'm in on the joke always. And I feel like performances like this and an unbearable way to mass talent, like reveal that he absolutely is. I mean, like there's a permanent cage of massive parts, I would say that is like very self-serious, but I think there is also the guy who is fully aware of the Nick Cage memeology and stuff like that. And it's just sort of like, I get it. Um, and this felt like very much an, I get it performance. Um, but also from someone who genuinely loves comic books and values, like, you know, what, what they can bring to the table. So I, I love him in this movie and this is a tough cut, but we'll talk about it to the spider verse sometime later this summer. We have plans to talk about it. So we will. All right, Dave, who are you cutting this week? I'm cutting a movie nobody wrote in about because maybe it was just me that saw it and liked it, but it is a 2013 film by director David Gordon Green. It will be popping up later in this debate, maybe. Uh, he has reason to. Uh, this movie's called Joe. Nicholas Cage plays a guy named Joe. It's about a gentleman who notices a young man uh, played by Ty Sheridan is in an abusive household and hires him and sort of uh, manages to rescue him from that uh, throughout the course of the movie. It's just one of those adult uh, dramas that has absolutely no hook based on Spider-Man or Iguanas. So it doesn't surprise me that Joe did not make this debate, but I did see and watch Joe. I was one of the people who saw Joe <laughs> in theaters. Uh, and uh, I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as just one of those those movies. What was the... It came out the same year, I think, as like Mud or whatever that Matthew McConaughey version of this exact same story was. And uh, Joe was so much It wasn't better. the same year as the McConaughey movie Killer Joe, was it? Because there was also that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. I think it was... <laughs> McConaughey and Reese Witherspoon. I can't handle the mud slander. No, I mean, mud good. is a great movie. The two yeah. mud boys, the Mud's two boys fine. from mud. I just think, Come on, Ty Sheridan. I just think Joe, I, I enjoy Joe better. Sure, that's fair. And it has Nick Cage in it, so therefore I can't bring up mud and still be relevant in this particular topic. All right, cool. So those are our toughest cuts. Uh, I have one more thing, then we'll do some dismissals and we'll get to this debate. But last week, of course, I mentioned the time that I met Nick Cage out in the world, uh, three o'clock in the morning in the Louisiana Bayou at a picnic table on the set of a movie. But it inspired at least one listener to write in a great story. This one comes from Maureen, and it's about a movie we're going to talk about in a minute, but it's, it's great. Maureen says... I feel like it's important to add that I met Nicolas Cage at a January 6, 2017 performance of La Boheme at the Met. He was there with his wife at the time. My mom and I were obviously inspired by Moonstruck when we chose La Boheme. Right? Am I saying that right? I'm not French. Yep. Since the score is played throughout the movie and it's the opera, Nicolas Cage's character takes Cher's character too. At intermission, we went to the bar for a drink and we saw an eccentrically dressed man at the bar with his wife. Lo and behold, it was Nicolas Cage in a floor-length coat of fur with a popped collar, a fedora, several large rings, and a cane. It felt like too good an opportunity to miss, so I went up to him and said, Hi, I'm sorry to bother you, but I brought my mom here tonight because of Moonstruck, which is one of our absolute favorite movies. Nicolas Cage said, Thank you, took my mom's hand, kissed it, and wished her a happy new year. He could not have been sweeter or more cordial. Shout out to Nicolas Cage. Uh, he's not always charming in his movies, but in real life, apparently, just melting hearts all over the place. <laughs> Where were you on January 6th? Nick Cage was at the Met seeing Lava Web in a full length. <laughs> <laughs> Making sure people saw him there. 
because that is not the description of an outfit <laughs> well, of somebody that does not want to be noticed. <laughs> yeah. Was 2017 that January 6th? No, 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 no. no that no, was no. later. No, okay. no, no, no. <laughs> Let's not start any conspiracy <laughs> no, theories. No, 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 no. The years all run together. Uh, anyway, so again, if you just like, if you want to send us your favorite Nicolas Cage uh, next generation comp, please, if you've ever seen Nicolas Cage out in the world and uh, he kissed your mother's hand, and, and please tell your us mom. about it. <laughs> Um, all right, so we got some some other movies to dismiss that fit really well into this category. Three of these come from one listener, Ashley, who I think nailed a couple of really good ones that I would recommend watching. Uh, one is The Weatherman, which is uh, Nicolas Cage as uh, the titular weatherman and an estranged father. That one is uh, that one's pretty good. There's also the uh, the Family Man. This is not was not in Ashley's email, but and also Matchstick Men. Nicolas Cage likes the, the- to be. A titular the man, man. man trilogy. <laughs> the man, man. Yeah, Magic Men. That's another good one. Um, good. Other ones that Ashley contributed: Mom and Dad, which is a, a thriller about um, with with Nicolas Cage and a really memorable, fun performance from Selma Blair. Like post uh, Cruel Intentions, she had been kind of away for a while. This is like a really fun, almost like. Um, you know, comeback story for, for some of Blair. And then Color Out of Space, which is a Lovecraftian sci-fi movie from, from 2019 in which Nicolas Cage plays like the father of a family who's um, like their backyard opens up like a portal to another world and other and weird stuff comes through it. Uh, it was directed by Richard Stanley, who notoriously got fired from the island of Dr. Moreau in the mid-90s and other weird stuff about him has come out since he does seems like maybe not a great guy but the movie itself color out of space i remember i saw this one uh i think at a fantastic fest in 2019 uh this is an elijah wood produced film that just it, it has these explosions of color yeah elijah wood he knows, he knows what's up. Cage Wood. Uh, wood Cage would be maybe that. <laughs> the law offices of Cage and Wood. So yeah, so that's another good one. And I think the the only other one uh, dismissal that we needed to talk about was Leaving Las Vegas and its absence from the debate. Uh, the next four movies that we're going to talk about. Leaving Las Vegas, a film that Nicolas Cage won an Academy Award for. Um, but would you say... I don't know if I would say that Leaving Las Vegas is his best performance. No. No. Okay. Also, uh, we picked eight fun movies. Why would we want to pick one? I never want to watch Leaving Las Vegas again. I would never take Cage's Oscar from him for that. But like, uh, alcoholism movies aren't comfortable for me because of family history. But like, um, he's very good in it. He looks like absolute dog shit is fantastic in it. And I just, uh, was watching this GQ interview with him this week where he's talking about how he hired like, uh, a known drunk to just like be with him the whole time. And he just like observed him and then would just like say things that he would say in <laughs> his role. So like he like <laughs> method that is, actor that studied is one way to do method and <laughs> a, a known drunkard in their like circle or whatever. Um, and yeah, it's very good. He's good in it, but I don't, I don't want to watch it again. So. Yeah. It's a tough, it's a tough watch. Maybe Nicholas Cage's toughest watch oh i don't know that's that's a weird that's a weird category but maybe maybe nicholas cage is done 
toughest watch. We I, I also want to say in that leaving Las Vegas anecdote, he talked about how like he would sit in his trailer with this like drunkard for hire. And then um, with love and respect, apparently that man is sober now. Great. I love that for him. Um, Nick Cage said he was playing the bongos to get the internal rhythm of the character right. And then just like writing down things this guy would say. And I'm like, yep, (laughs) (laughs) that's our cage. It's very, love him. Very tough. Um, Also, uh, I guess toughest watch would have to also include eight millimeter just to say. Uh, maybe leaving Las Vegas isn't the toughest Nick Cage. But that's watch. even the plot of Eight Millimeter. <laughs> I remember that from the trailer, him <laughs> flinching as he watches the titular Eight Millimeter film. We should um, also shout out that our producer Carlos has, uh, at the request of one of our listeners, put together a trial by content Letterboxd account so you can file tri- follow trial by content on Letterboxd. Um, we'll have like the four movies we're debating. Uh, we'll go in there every week. Um, but then also Carlos is doing lists of these pre-trial dismissals, like other movies that we talked about. So in case you're not listening with a pen handy, you can go bop over to the trial by content letterbox and be like, what was that psychedelic Lovecraftian thing <laughs> Neil was talking about? Oh, color out of space. So, you know, stuff like that. Nice. Uh, so there you have it. That's, that's everything we need to dismiss this week. And I'm sure we'll come up with even more dismissals somehow for next week when we when we get to the cage final. <laughs> um, but I think it's time to talk about the cage division. The cage division is made up of four films. It is Moonstruck, Raising Arizona, Adaptation, and the Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, we're going to go in reverse chronological order. Joanna, what did you think about The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent? A movie I saw in theaters and tried to get people to go see, but it wasn't the cult hit that I thought it could be. Do you think maybe it's got some it's got some runway now that it's uh, streamable? I also saw this in the theater and tried to get people to go see and was surprised it didn't hit harder in theaters. Though, you know, it's like we're still coming out of the pandemic, like... I definitely saw it with a, like a mask on at the Alamo. So like um, it is on stars currently. And also we should shout out like two things are happening. Number one, there's this insanely popular meme to the tune of uh, Cass Elliott's make your own kind of music uh, of Pedro Pascal and Nicolas Cage on LSD driving. That is like a really popular meme on TikTok. Like one of those popular memes I've ever seen on TikTok because Pedro is just like running the memes across the board on TikTok this year. Um, and then Stars and or and or maybe Lionsgate sort of latching onto that has started dropping little TikTok ads for the movie itself to be like, hey, I hear you kids love this meme. <laughs> Want to watch the goddamn movie it's from? That would be great. <laughs> um, so maybe there's some sort of like TikTok surge for it. That would be really nice. Um, I loved it in the theater and then I rewatched it yesterday and I had just like the best time with it like i didn't know if the surprise i mean obviously i knew what the premise was the premise being nicholas cage is playing a like sort of gonzo version of himself um according to him he's like this guy is not really me um there's some stuff in there that feels a little nicholas cage like his love of um caligari and stuff like that um uh but he's playing a version of himself who's like a bad dad and a bad ex-husband and is like not doing very well in his career and has accumulated a lot of debt and all sort of stuff like that. The direct video stuff that we talked about last week, all sort of stuff. And his agent, played by Neil Pat- Patrick Harris, gets an opportunity for him to go just ch- attend a birthday party 
for a very wealthy uh, man in Spain. And that man is played by one Pedro Pascal. And then um, FBI-based hijinks ensue um, because perhaps this man played by Pedro Pascal, who is like the world's biggest Nicolas Cage fan, uh, is uh, also a a crime lord. Um, Great Nick Cage performance. Great, great. So... Like, and such a fun reward. I mean, maybe this should have been like actually the last movie watched because there's like watching it on the heels of watching all these other movies that get referenced throughout has been, was so fun for me. Um, Because like I had already seen all of the movies that we talked about, except for adaptation, which we'll talk about in a second was a first watch for me. But like, and, and this film shares a lot of DNA with adaptation when you get like a double cage performance. Cause he also plays this like Nikki alter ego of himself. That's based on his wild at heart, um, performance. And, uh, and then there's like also a lot of meta commentary about like how to make a good Hollywood film. And so like that, so there's like, that's adaptation baked in, but then there's just like a lot of other references to the other films we've been talking about. And it's just like a perfect celebration of his filmography and a perfect celebration of like what it means to be an actor who has like been a thing and is now something else, which is something we're talking about with cage, these like various stages of his cage to And he's great. Pedro is fucking phenomenal as this like very sweet very funny devoted uh fan of nicholas cages and uh sharon horgan the wonderful sharon horgan is here um as his uh ex-wife and um and then uh kate beckinsale's nepo baby daughter plays his daughter so um <laughs> yeah had a, really had a great yeah i had a great yeah michael sheen's nepo baby daughter also uh i had a great um great time with this movie how about you guys i mean this i also saw this movie in a theater uh back when it came out tried to get people to go this was one of the few movies i actually saw in a theater in the first half of 2022 right um but no i love it i love that there's just like subtle little things like the sort of dried out nature of la like how all the la scenes scenes just like look sapped of all moisture and that comes alive in cage's <laughs> performance Uh, I mean, you mentioned all the references, but like this movie opens with a scene of someone getting kidnapped while watching Con Air, which I think is is a a fantastic way to open your film. Also love that it's a movie where Nicolas Cage gets radicalized into the cult of Paddington, too. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Which I think is is important for not only Nicolas Cage, but cinema overall. I mean, I don't want to hammer anything home too hard here, but it is a fantastic Nicolas Cage movie that honors everything not national treasure about Nicolas Cage's <laughs> filmography. <laughs> I'm sure there has to be a Nicolas Cage, like a national treasure item in the Cage Museum. Oh, I'm sure there's a national treasure item in there, but like the wooden hand from Moonstruck, it goes unspoken. <laughs> they do call out the buddy in the box. The elegant string of pearls uh, configuration, and then of course the, the face-off guns yeah. get yeah. some major play. So I, I like this movie because it seems to have the same opinion about Nicolas Cage's career as I have, which is, of course, he's the guy who's going to bring up Cabinet of Dr. Caligari in the actual interview, but he also has an acknowledgement that all of these props from all of his movies are the certain type of grotesque he would like to own. I like that version of Nicolas Cage. And I think one of the like interesting things about having a movie that's about a star's persona 
is how far they allow or how close they allow that persona to hew towards uh, how they portray themselves outside of that. Nicolas Cage seems to have, like, whatever his media personality is, seems to also be the lead character of this movie, which means that if he views this as, like, an outsized version of himself, he's doing a fantastic job selling himself to somebody, me, who buys and rents Nicolas Cage movies. <laughs> Good job uh, self-promoting that. I I am not quite the Pedro Pascal, but I do recognize that type of fandom and that type of compulsive collecting. So I, I see myself and I see Nicolas Cage uh, in this movie, and it's it's pretty great. If only we were Spanish drug lords, we would be able to actually hang out with Nicolas Cage. Uh, goals. <laughs> Hashtag goals. Hashtag goals. Speaking of, th- speaking of times I've seen myself in Nick Cage movies, let me tell you about a movie that came out in December 2002 after a young Dave Gonzalez had already submitted his screenwriting uh, to Tisch School of the Arts at NYU in an attempt to become a screenwriter. This movie is Adaptation. It is a Spike Jones, Charlie Kaufman follow-up to... Uh, being John Malkovich, this time supposedly an adaptation of The Orchid Thief, but instead becomes a movie that starts with the history of the entire world and ends maybe with an adaptation of The Orchid Thief. But more importantly, along the way, uh, we have a whole bunch of uh, odd screenplay ticks uh, from a dual performance from Nicolas Cage as the real-life Charlie Kaufman, the screenwriter, and his fictional twin brother, Donald Kaufman, both played here uh, by Nicolas Cage. Uh, We also have a Robert Robert McKee uh, uh, appearance uh, by Brian Cox. Robert McKee, a very real uh, person who does screenwriting seminars and wrote the book Story. Uh, which was very popular around the time that I went to college for screenwriting, and of course gets roasted and then embraced again uh, in this film, which is uh, pretty great. Uh, You also have a lot of weird things in this movie, like Meryl Streep playing a fictionalized version of a real person, Chris Cooper playing a fictionalized version of a real person, and then David Gordon Green showing up playing himself. I don't, no, I'm sorry. That was the last one. That was an unbearable way to massive talent. These are the two meta movies, which is why I wanted to squish <laughs> them together. And this one really does uh, go everywhere in terms of where a possible movie about flowers can be. As Cage, as Charlie Kaufman says to Tilda Swinton early on in the film, he wants it to be about flowers and everything, but not a Hollywood movie that has shootouts, car chases, and guns. Surprise, surprise. And shootout, car chases, guns, and drugs. Surprise, surprise, by the third act, uh, we get all of those things. Uh, I would say that adaptation is a really interesting type of meta that I think Charlie Kaufman has uh, cultivated as his style. Uh, going forward, and uh, it really plays great here because he's able to heap that on a character that he says is himself, where I think otherwise uh, some Charlie Kaufman explorations of time and depression can be a little bit alienating. See your anomalies. Uh, Joanna, you said this is your first time with adaptation. Yeah, I don't know why. I, I was talking to you 
our ringer calling Van Lathan this morning about it because he called me like before 8 a.m. because I told him I texted him I was watching it for the first time and he was like he had to call me because he was like the first time he's like why the hell did you ever see adaptation <laughs> and I was like I don't know because he, Van and I are the same age and and like around that time when the sort of um, Michelle Gondry, Spike Jones, Charlie Kaufman, David O. Russell, like, like I loved all of those movies. I love Charlie Kaufman movies. Um, I read The Orchid Thief in college for some reason. Like, so I read the book that it was like supposedly adapting and stuff like that. And for some reason, I never saw the, and And I care about movies about making movies. And for some reason, I never saw this film. I knew the premise loosely. I didn't know how, how Gonzo it gets at the end. But like I knew loosely the premise that it was about Charlie Kaufman and a fictional twin brother adapting the an unadaptable book into a movie. And then like my understanding is that Charlie Kaufman was legitimately hired to adapt The Orchid Thief he was trying to do something like simple and straightforward. And then he's just like, I can't adapt this book. So he just turned in this script thinking that they were just going to fire him. And they're like, <laughs> sure, let's make this. <laughs> so like, that's great. Um, and Nick Cage apparently like sat down with Charlie Kaufman and, and has hours and hours and hours and hours of interviews with him to like capture his like mannerisms and his anxieties and stuff like that. And then he burned the tapes, like literally burned the tapes on fire because Charlie Kaufman's like only if you like, no one ever sees these and Nick Cage is like I'll burn them and then he literally burned them and that's just like <laughs> such a Nick Cage thing to do to like get the kerosene out um I love this I um Van was talking about how it's like maybe the movie that he watched the most um in that time of his oh, life that he would watch it like every day and I um because Van is someone who's like deeply interested in you know s- story and filmmaking and stuff like that too and um I don't know that I ever would have had that relationship with it, but I, you know, like I think Eternal Sunshine was maybe my version of that at the same time. But like I, I don't know why I missed it. I think it's phenomenal. Um, I love that it interacts with being John Malkovich, another film that we have talked about on this podcast. We were doing like actors playing themselves, uh, maybe in honor of Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Actually, we did that uh, debate, but um. Yeah, I love I I love all the Hollywood stuff that's in there. Tilda Swinton is great. Ron Livingston is great as like a sleazeball agent. Like all that stuff <laughs> is really fun. Um, and yeah, and and, the, and that anxiety is the anxiety of the blank page. All this stuff I found deeply relatable. So yeah, I lo- I love this movie. So I, I like the main thing I knew is that Chris Cooper, another actor I love, won his Oscar from this movie. Um, and now I see why. I, not that I doubted it, but now I see why. He's, he's phenomenal and like a missing his two front teeth kind of performance. So yeah, great stuff. I loved it. Yeah, no, I love adaptation. It's there's such a visceral quality to just the scenes where it's just Nicolas Cage and a typewriter, and he's fighting with the idea of starting his script. That is just such an, a, a deeply accurate portrayal of like writer's anxiety and what writer's block is really like. That um, always gets me. I don't for that reason the 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 anxiety triggers. I don't know if it's a movie I could have a watch it all the time relationship with, but <laughs> yeah. it's it's uh, it's a really great movie and you know a great double cage. Whenever you can get a double cage, you're in good shape. Yeah, and this uh, yeah love love a double cage. <laughs> uh, so next up, Neil, I think you got an email for this one. It's Moonstruck, I believe. Well, yeah, we have two movies from 1987 um, that we're going to talk about. And we got some really great emails about both of these. So, yes, we will start with Moonstruck. This email comes from Mary. Mary says, I present for your consideration the best movie featuring Nicolas Cage, Moonstruck. 
Okay, we all know that the number one reason to watch this movie is to watch the transcendent performance of the indescribably amazing Cher and her beautiful hair. But Nicolas Cage shoveling bread and yelling in a tight white tank top is absolutely a close second. Nicolas Cage's Ronnie is unhinged, angry, and dramatic. A Nick Cage trifecta. Some context, he's still grieving the end of a relationship and the loss of his hand. What does he say, Joanna? What does he yell? I lost my hand. I lost my bride. Johnny has his hand. Johnny has his bride. Like that? Yeah. Uh, He blames both of these things on his big brother, who is engaged to Cher's character, Loretta. One of the best scenes in the movie, and in my opinion, one of Nicolas Cage's best scenes ever, comes when Loretta, after one after one unsuccessful attempt at getting Ronnie to agree to come to their wedding, comes to see him at his bakery to try inviting him again. Naturally, Ronnie reacts to Loretta's invitation by threatening to kill himself. Just one of the all-time great characters loudly threatening to kill themselves on screen. (laughs) Bring me the big knife. I'm going to cut my throat. I mean, (laughs) whom's among us can't relate to that? Not a fan of the disheveled, grieving Nick Cage and want something more refined? Fear not. The people who made this movie were thinking of you too because we also get to see him dressed to the nines in a tux because his character inexplicably loves the opera. This whole movie is truly wild with an amazing group of supporting characters who spend the whole movie making wonderfully terrible decisions. It shows us that love and life and family are messy and that there's a beauty in the mess. And even if it's far too messy to bear, it's fine. Because as Academy Award winner Olympia Dukakis says, no matter where you go or what you do, you're going to die. <laughs> uh, love, I love Moonstruck. I was trying to think about these. both of these movies from 1987 were important ones to my family as I was growing up. And I was trying to think about all the reasons why my mom and my sort of aunts and uncles were really into Moonstruck. And then you get about halfway in the, through the movie and the Catholicism just jumps out real hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, all right, now I get it. Also, some great lines. Snap out of it. One of the all-time great Snap deliveries. So good. Uh, and we, of course, talked about cages. Uh, I lost my hand. I lost my girl. <laughs> uh, I also just always forget that I really love the moment where... Um, Loretta puts Johnny on this is not cage related but she puts Johnny on the plane and she walks over and there's just that little Italian lady who's just like I put a curse on that plane my sister is on that plane (laughs) yeah this movie this movie's fun I love all the moon imagery um you know of course we I think we we were talking a little bit earlier about the 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 twin towers they show up right there at the beginning of of Moonstruck and uh, yeah it's just an extremely charming movie filled with amazing performances and uh yeah i just it, it's it is a very dynamic cage as mary said it's that it's true you get wild cage and you get fancy cage and he's very charming at times it's Moon, moonstruck was a good one this is like hot hot romantic cage uh i think moonstruck and raising arizona are nice like i think we got like Meta dual performance cage in uh, adaptation and unbearable weight. And then we've got like, you know, sort of hot leading man, but cartoonish always cage. And these two, we'll talk about raising Arizona in a second. I do want to shout out the most Kate, like because Moonstruck is a fairly like straightforward film, right? Like John Patrick Shanley, other than the B movie, um, which I think we've talked about <laughs> while mountain time, um, John Patrick Shanley does like straightforward kind of, filmmaking um but he still injects this like wild man 
persona into it. Um, and uh, talking about it, he cites both. He was like, when I when I saw when I saw Script for Moonstruck, I thought it was like a Beauty and the Beast story, right? So he thinks of himself as the Beast um, in in this uh, in this movie, and so he's like, so I was inspired by Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast and modeled my voice off of like that character, um, and then the like, I lost my hand, I lost my bride speech he's like is inspired by fritz lang's metropolis um there's this just moment where like he has his hand up and he's pointing to it and uh he's like yeah and i'm just like i love you nicholas gage like this is genuinely one of your most down the line movies and you're like well cocteau and fritz lang inspired my performances <laughs> he's from he's from a real big italian family why didn't he say anything about that that would have been my first point of reference being like oh i understand moonstruck because i have a big italian family who's into catholicism so and share of course yeah, yeah love it. share of course won the oscar for this so like both Chris Cooper and Cher won Oscars off the back of a Nick Cage performance. No, Cher won it off on her own. Um, also, John Patrick Shanley and Olympia Dukakis also won Oscars for this. John Patrick Shanley, uh, like we said, went on to make The Incredible be a movie while Mountain Time. Um, I just want to shout out that adaptation. Charlie Kaufman was also nominated but didn't win the Oscar for adaptation. But it was both Charlie Kaufman and Donald Kaufman were nominated <laughs> for the Oscar for adaptation, which is just... We have fun. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. Crediting uh, is fun. It's kind of like how on Massive Talent, Nicolas Cage is credited as Nicolas Kim Coppola playing, Cage, playing Nick Cage. <laughs> That's really fun. Um, <laughs> last thing I want to say about Moonstruck, and then I want to know what Dave thinks about it. New- Moonstruck is my first memory of watching a film on a plane. And ladies and gentlemen, gather around the old campfires. I tell you that once upon a time... There used to be one large screen at the front of the cabin that, like, you know, rolled down. It wasn't like individual screens at the back of your seat. And so I remember, like, sitting between probably my mom and my sister and, like, being kind of blissed out watching Moonstruck on a screen at the front of the cabin and, like, not understanding it at all because I was way too young, but, like, having a great time with it. So. Yeah, well, you yes, you, you used to have to like buy the headphones. It would just be the two the with the with the little uh, foam. Yeah, pieces. really awkward, really <laughs> deeply awkward. The, t- the tube headphones, where the audio was coming through like an actual tube. It was. Uh, yeah, it was. A, it was a great uh, way to have a shared experience with people you're trapped <laughs> on a plane with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I like Woodstock a lot. I think the thing that we're all sort of uh, dancing around, but since it's debate, let's bring it up. This this is a share movie that has Nicolas Cage in it. Uh, not that his performance, as you know, it was rightly pointed out by Mary. You get a uh, disheveled, yelling cage, and then um, you know, sort of upstanding in a tux uh, cage, both in the same movie. Uh, but it's almost he gives over his performance to allow, I think, the ensemble to sort of breathe. Uh, and also doesn't take as much uh, attention as somebody named Ronnie who has a wooden hand and works uh, in his situation should be, especially when his brother is named Johnny and there's some sort of weird thing going on with uh, their relationship to their mother and each other. Like, this is a cartoon character that is folded into a, you know, rom-com, and Nick Cage makes it believable just by, I think, making, by himself believing that he's doing 
a throwback to Metropolis during that monologue, <laughs> which legitimizes it in in the character. So I think it's a fantastic Nick Cage performance. But if we decide best Nick Cage movie is going to be most Nick Cage movie, I think he loses out uh, to share in this one. We should say uh, Moonstruck got the second most number of emails from listeners right after National Treasure. So absolutely. I could see this winning just because I imagine there are people like us where our families just it was an okay thing to watch with the kids, which I think also applies to the next mm-hmm. one, right? Well, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the next one, also from 1987, is the Coen Brothers film, Raising Arizona. We got an email from our listener, Deb, about this one that I, I really like. Uh, here's how the email goes. Date, spring, 1987. Place, a weight training room in the basement of a Manhattan high school. Scene, two teenage girls, just shy of five foot tall, are doing sets. Typical conversation follows. Do you think cute boy likes me? Son, you've got a panty on your head. Did you do the math homework? I need a baby, hi. Give me that baby, you warthog from hell. Weight training sucks. (laughs) All interspersed with side-splitting laughter to the confusion and probably annoyance of our classmates. My best friend and I could not stop talking about raising Arizona. We had never seen anything like it or anything or anyone like Nicolas Cage. Cage is often so weird and makes bizarre acting choices, but I would vote for this as his his sweetest version of the weird and therefore necessary in the Battle Royale. Cut to nine months later and all of our conversation was about Moonstruck. The only thing that would be difficult in this trial is if Moonstruck and Raising Arizona are against each other. (laughs) Deb, I have terrible news for you. (laughs) They are in fact against each other. I... Raising Arizona, another one. Like Dave said, it's it was it was a movie that for some reason my family thought was safe to watch with kids. That was not true. I actually last week I think I said that the scary traumatic moment in Raising Arizona was when um, Leonard Smalls, the biker, eventually shows up. That is not upon rewatch. I am confirming that it is uh, the dream that High has about the biker at the beginning, in which he blows up a bunny with a grenade. Deeply terrifying to me as a child in the late 1980s. But I love, I mean, the energy of this movie is great. I love all the like POV shots from like the hood or the roof or the side the, of a car or, or the, the side of the motorcycle. POV? Yeah, that creates this incredible um, anxiety and energy. I always found the Polish jokes really funny because let me tell you who loves Polish jokes? Polish people. So I grew up hearing a lot of them and that felt like representation <laughs> to me. Um, I love the colors, like the color pops in this movie are incredible from cinematographer who you may have heard of, Barry Sonnenfeld, who went on to direct movies, I believe. Like, uh, didn't he do what, Men in Black? (laughs) Something like that. Uh, I love, I mean, all the way down to like some of the great one-liners that are, (laughs) when John Goodman and when they're robbing the bank and they're telling people that they have, that they're going to be back in, in like five minutes, he, he just says, anyone found bipedal in five wears his ass as a hat. And honestly, it's not one of the top Raising <laughs> Arizona quotes, but it's a great one to me. So uh, yeah, just a movie that I, every second of it, I love and appreciate all the way down to its hot pink credit font at the end. <laughs> um, yeah, Raising raising your, I this is one that not only do we get like a full-throated cage performance uh as as uh HI what's what is his it's Herbert 
What's his middle name? I don't think we ever know the, me- know the, middle, the middle name. name. Herbert yeah. I. McDonough, yeah. Herbert I. McDonough. But uh, it's also a very pure, like, Coen Brothers experience, right? Like, a very unfiltered early. The Coen Brothers were just, you know, going at 90 miles an hour with, with uh, just all the wild characters that they were throwing at you. So, uh, yeah, Raising Arizona, a classic. What do you, uh, what do you guys remember about Raising Arizona? Yeah, I... D- I was gonna th- when I, we went into this uh, week, I was thinking that we this week about uh, Cage Match would actually be about what movie manages to have a third act that actually relates to the other acts, and if we use that, <laughs> I think Raising Arizona <laughs> is probably towards the top because it actually sort of ends where you think it should end, given that they steal a baby. Uh, whereas I think the other movies kind of go off in wild directions in the third act. I think Raising Arizona is incredibly fun. As Neil was saying, the Coen brothers were sort of learning how fast they could make a movie go, uh, given a lot of their Coen-ish tendencies, uh, but also how serious a movie involving children does or does not need to be. Uh, when I first started watching this movie, uh, I did. It did feel sort of like a cartoon uh, all the way through, uh, and probably established some of my prejudices about you know uh, prisoners and bounty hunters and all these sort of things <laughs> uh, that I knew nothing actually about, but you know was introduced to them in this sort of wacky movie. I definitely, I definitely may have learned some things about that son of a bitch Reagan from this movie. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or just the idea, like, at the end of this movie, somebody, some people who escaped jail just decide to go back in through the exact hole they escaped from. I was just like, yeah, that's a choice. You know, whatever. Um, uh, but now watching it, uh, being older, still don't have any kids, but I do feel the editing around uh, the shots of the baby falling off the top of a car and landing perfectly upright in the middle of the road. So there's a bit more threat in this movie, uh, just in that I'm now more aware of how fragile children are. But other than that, it's still incredibly fun. Uh, love a yodeling soundtrack to a car chase. Love the portrayal of the police just immediately shooting guns like in neighborhoods, at houses, chasing somebody through like a neighborhood house, guns drawn with dogs, just like adding on top of that chase scene. All of it really for some huggies at the end of the sequence. Uh, I think this this movie, this movie uh, much more than the other ones is just entertaining sequence after entertaining sequence. Uh, with some voiceover to tie together, which you think would apply to adaptation, but it is really applying to Raising Arizona. If your go-to is like fun, lovable cage, I think Raising Arizona is the winner uh, just because he's uh, sort of down on himself occasionally, like adaptation. He has like a clear view of what he wants his future to be in this movie, but uh, is frequently doubting himself, which draws him further back into crime. But none of it's too heavy, and uh, I think it's 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 pretty great. It's probably the most fun, even after uh, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, because its action, I think, 
doesn't seem to come out of left fields. Like Unbearable Way to Master Talent has a third act that sort of also goes into action like nowhere. But like uh, a lot of people get uh, shot in a not funny way uh, in the end of that movie, even though we're dealing with sort of like a fun movie here. I know. I forgot mm-hmm. that what happened to a couple of characters in that movie. I was very <laughs> surprised that I forgot yeah, I'm like, about that. Oh, those, that humorous character is dead now is because dead I now. saw them get shot. Yeah. Raising Arizona knows that if you're going to introduce a uh, bounty hunter gentleman uh, blowing up a rabbit with a grenade, uh, that therefore we could have Nicolas Cage grab his motorcycle and be drugged for a little bit in the final shot. I think this movie uh, has a really good balance on its own tone and therefore escalates, I think, the best uh, out of these uh, three films. Four films. Out of these four films. Yeah, there isn't a shootout at the end of Moonstruck. Um, but I think the... Uh, an emotional shootout, maybe. Um, there is a... Um, I don't know. I would say with Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, since the whole premise of Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent is basically based on that part of Romancing the Stone where Kathleen Turner's character shows up and the struggler is like, the Joan Wilder? And is like a huge <laughs> fan of her as a romance novelist. And that ends up in a big shootout and like, a, you know, car chase and stuff like that. I was like primed to expect that that's where we were going with Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. So that doesn't feel out of left field for me at all. But the Looney Tune vibe of Raising Arizona, uh, which is so fun. This is the second, only the second Coen Brothers film. And it's like a huge departure from Blood Simple, their first film. And like, if you look at Blood Simple and Raising Arizona, you can see like the two, the twin Coen personalities that occasionally blend and then will occasionally like, they'll do a serious one or then they'll do like a wacky one and stuff like that. And then like their best stuff is when they're doing both at the same time, probably. Um so this is like their wacky one after uh, Blood Simple, their really bloody noir one. Um, I was watching the Siskel and Ebert uh, review of this, by the way. And like Gene Siskel was like, like people didn't really like this movie when it came out. Like people really like Blood Simple. They were like the Coens, these guys, they're new. They've got it. And then they did this and they're like, what is this? Uh, because <laughs> I don't think they had established like that, that tone that they were capable of. So like Ebert hated it. And Gene Siskel was like defending it. And he's like, I like it. And Ebert's like, well, let's watch it again in five years and see how they feel. And I didn't, I don't know that they actually did a five-year follow-up, but I'm like, I think Gene got this one on you, Roger. Um, <laughs> You already mentioned the Carter Burwell score. Carter Burwell will like was the Coen like if it's not T Bone Burnett doing a Coen Brothers film, it's Carter Burwell doing it. He does like Martin McDonough films. He also did It Could Happen to You, an adaptation to other Nick Cage movies that we talked about today. Um, but that score is just like absolutely balls to the wall iconic uh, for what they're doing here. And then we mentioned earlier in this episode about how. Um, Nick Cage viewed this as uh, like a Woody Woodpecker performance. And he said that he used to rub his hair with his hand over his hair before every single take to get static electricity going so that it would just like shoot up in the air a la Woody Woodpecker. Like that's what he was trying to do with his hair in this movie. Um, and it works. It's so great. And um, and it's so fun to see him in these in these two 1987 films where he's just like, just looks like a different guy altogether. He's just like so young, so rangy and lanky and stuff like that. And um, just the the fun cartoon vibes. It was so interesting watch, re-watching this movie. I was like, you know, because there are a few Coen Brothers regulars in this, like John Goodman, obviously like uh, Francis McDormand's in it and stuff like that. Um, I was like, why isn't Nicolas Cage made another 
Coen Brothers film. Like, this is such a fun combo. And it's because they did not like each other, apparently. Like, <laughs> he had a lot of opinions and the Coen Brothers had a lot of opinions and those opinions didn't necessarily mesh. So I'm glad they got this good of a performance out of, like, something that was kind of a fraught uh, creative relationship. Um, but yeah, I love this movie. Just, just all time. Son, you got a panty on your head. Iconic physical comedy <laughs> stuff from from Nick Cage, and then like also obviously Holly Hunter is just all timer. So awesome in this movie. I love him so much. Like the choices <laughs> she makes and the way that he bounces off of the choices she makes is just like the way she man, walks when she's when she's like, "Give me that baby," is <laughs> is incredible. <laughs> um, so I. Good. I think my favorite cage line in this movie is the one that he doesn't actually say the words, but after he pulls the pin on the biker guy's thing, he just looks at him. He's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> and he like walks away. <laughs> like that to me is, is up there with the Looney Tunes moments. And then I, I just am always deeply appreciative of how they shot the, the fight where John Goodman and cage are, are slamming each other around in the mobile home. It, the way it's shot, it, that I mean, thing? Yeah. that is the closest I think we'll ever get to a live action Looney Tunes fight between two characters, <laughs> right? So, uh, yeah, great stuff. Raising, I, Raising Arizona is a tough one to beat in this particular category, unless you're a big share fan, uh, in which case Moonstruck. But uh, it's good. One more. Yeah. One more thing I want to say about something that Nick Cage said about making this movie that I thought was really sweet was like he says, however fraud it might have been making it whatever he says that he coined a phrase on this shoot that he has used again anytime that he is making a movie that doesn't feel like it's for money or for notoriety but just like for the pure pleasure of making the movie and he says it's uh i got that super eight feeling like that feeling of making a movie in the backyard with like your brother right. or your friend or something like that you know what i mean so it's just like we're goofing off with a with a camera in the middle of the desert somewhere and uh yeah purity of the purity of this movie so good the man loves the process of acting <laughs> i don't know i don't know if i would pick one like i don't know neil you picked yours dave what's yours like what would you pick oh of this yeah see that's the top that's maybe we have a, a moment here to discuss uh the thing that's sort of been on the edge of this study are we saying it's the best movie are we saying it's the most Nicolas Cage movie because Moonstruck and Raising Arizona are probably the more fun ones I had in this four and Unbearable Way to Massive Talent really close and maybe it's because it's I've seen it more recently and I have like no nostalgia attached to it and it is other than what the movie brings to itself um but like most Nicolas Cage movie I think gets Moonstruck out of there and might lose Raising Arizona just because adaptation and unbearable weight of massive talent are focused around multiple cages in the same movie, uh, reflecting on themselves one way or the other. But maybe I'd also be wrong because adaptation is so much uh, Cage's idea of Charlie Kaufman, who is very reserved in this movie. Whereas like raising Arizona is probably like super cage. It is. Does that distinction make it easier for you? If it's most Nicolas Cage or best movie? Yeah. Yes. I mean that it does make a difference on how I would vote. Like best movie out of the four of the cuts. Fucking hard. These are great movies. Um, 
I'd probably pick for my own taste Moonstruck, but maybe just because I imprinted on it when I was young. But um, because it feels too recency biased to pick unbearable weight of massive talent, but that might be the most caged because of it's like celebratory look back at his career, like unbearable weight feels like it should go forward. So I might, I might pick Moonstruck and unbearable weight if I were to pick two going forward. What would you do, Neil? I think mine would be, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I just lean all the way into like, which one is the best movie. Um, and it would, it, it, for me, it's Moonstruck and Raising Arizona. As much as I like, again, they're all, all great. And I feel like unbearable weight of massive talent will be one that I continue to grow to love the further away we get from its release year last year um, because of my overall Nick Cage fandom. But yeah, if it's best movie, it's Raising Arizona and Moonstruck sort of in a tie for me. I would love for it to be Raising Arizona and Unbearable Weight, but I think it's going to be Moonstruck, Raising Arizona, which is fine with me. I think either of those could beat National Treasure, which is the goal. <laughs> you can find our poll for the caged division of this trial royale on theringer.com, at Ringer on Twitter, and in the Spotify app where you find trial by content. You choose the winner amongst these four. Adaptation, Moonstruck, Raising Arizona, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. The top two will go on to face National Treasure and face off next week. By the way, next week isn't just the final, but we are going to be doing a fourth week of Nicolas Cage. I don't know if you guys heard last week, but we're doing uh, Unleashed Cage Division. Joanna, what are we doing for the, the week after in case people want to watch watch some more Nick Cage movies? Oh, we haven't like ironclad solidified it, right? But we are pretty sure... And I'm going to forget one. Um, but aren't they all ones I haven't seen? So let's see how we do. Mm-hmm. Mandy and Pig are mm-hmm. two of them, right? Yes. Yep. Yes. Um, and then what else are we doing? Guys? There's a Scorsese movie in there. Oh, yeah. Bring, bring, bring out, out the, dead. the Dead. And then yeah. the one with the bees. Oh, Wicker Man. Okay. Wicker Man, <laughs> Bring Out the Dead, Mandy and Pig. None of which I've seen. Uh, and I'm so excited to watch all of them. So it's Nicolas Cage Unleashed, but also, I guess, Nicolas Cage's movies Joanna hasn't seen. Um, but also, please continue to send your suggestions for Unleashed because if there's one that like you guys feel really passionate about, we might be willing to bump one of these, but I think these are good options, it's good, right? So. It's a good mix, for sure. It's a good it's a good mix of, like, you know, sort of weird cage. Just really, really weird cage. <laughs> Just weird <laughs> Cage. Uh, before I throw it to Neil to tell you what you're going to write in about, to trialbycontent.gmail.com. Just a reminder, you go to letterbox.com slash trialbycontent to find our Letterboxd account where Carlos has been maintaining lists that will list all of the movies that we're both debating and have mentioned. Really Nicolas Cage heavy right now, but it will only get more diverse as we move forward. Uh, Neil, what should people write in for for next well, week? Well, I mean, as you know, we're going to be doing the cage match uh, trial rail final, but that does not mean that there aren't still homework assignments that you can do. Send, of course, questions, comments, thoughts to trialbycontent at gmail.com. A couple of options for you. Nice try awards. There's still many Nicolas Cage adjacent things out there. Tell us if you've ever seen Nicolas Cage out in the world. We'd love to hear those stories. And uh, yeah, any other 
Any other Nicolas Cage uh, thoughts that you think that we have missed, right? Like if someone wants to really, really dig into his direct-to-video stuff in an email, that would be fun. But uh, yeah, any thoughts? Try by content at gmail.com. Uh, for the next two weeks, it's still Kate. Wall-to-wall cage. Wall-to-wall cage. It's Nick fucking cage. <laughs> Woo! This episode is produced by Carlos Cherbogo. <laughs> <laughs>